Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. It is Thursday, October 5th, 2017. I'm Scott Bland, your host, and you are listening to Politico's Nerdcast. We're going to jump in this week talking about the shooting in Las Vegas and what Congress is and is not doing in response to it. It's been a decade since Congress passed a new gun control measure. There is some talk of... Uh, another one being passed in response to uh, the tragedy in Nevada. But it is not as big a step as a lot of Democrats are calling for and have been calling for after uh, each one of these major mass shootings that's taken place in the United States over the past few years. We're also going to talk about tax reform. That's the other big issue percolating in Congress right now. Nancy Cook has the inside scoop on what is going on in those talks and uh, we're going to talk about just why this issue is so difficult, uh, even as Republicans put another difficult issue in health care in the rearview mirror. And for our third segment, uh, we are going to talk a little bit about Secretary of State Rex Tillerson. He's in the news this week over uh, comments he reportedly made about Donald Trump. Uh, but also, he's just been having uh, a little bit of a tough time in his relationships with the White House in general, one of several cabinet secretaries uh, having a little bit of a tough time this summer. And so we're going to talk a little bit about what's going on with him and what is percolating on the foreign policy front over the next few weeks as well. A couple quick housekeeping notes before we jump into all that. Remember, if you have questions, you can email us at nerdcast at politico.com. And uh, please remember to subscribe, rate us, and if you have time, write written reviews of the Nerdcast on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. We love getting your feedback. It helps us make the show better. It helps us expand the audience and helps us keep the Nerdcast going. So remember, please subscribe, rate us, and write written review of the Nerdcast if you have the time. All right. I'm here, as usual, with senior politics editor Charlie Matessian. Charlie, thanks for being here. Hi, Scott. And for our first segment this week, we have on the line uh, Politico's Capitol Bureau Chief, John Bresnahan. Hi, guys. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right. And so our data point is 10. And that is actually that's how many years it's been since Congress has passed a new gun control measure policy area that's back in the news this week for uh, all the wrong reasons. Congress did reauthorize an existing ban on plastic guns in 2013. But we haven't seen any kind of new new action on this, despite, uh, you know, again and again, we've seen these mass shootings and we've seen a real kind of outcry from Democrats on on the Hill and occasionally a Republican or two. But but there, there has not been new legislation. So, John, the, the shooting in Las Vegas was quickly followed by these renewed calls for Congress to do something and by renewed pessimism about the prospect. So what, what's shaping up the same and what's shaping up differently from the other recent times that Congress has been pushed by some toward action after a mass shooting? Well, I mean, we did after the, the Sandy Hook shooting, uh, that tragedy, uh, there was in 2013, there was a, a, a very long debate in the Senate uh, and the Senate Judiciary Committee and then on the floor over, over universal background checks. The idea of that there had to be a background check for every sale of any gun, either private or through a, federal, a licensed federal firearms dealer, which is in the case now, 
if you go to a gun shop and they have a federal license, they uh, they have to do a background check. If I purchase a gun directly from you in a private transaction, there doesn't have to be a background check. So there was a lot of debate over that. There was a bipartisan bill by Senators Joe Manchin, Democrat of West Virginia, and Pat Toomey, Republican of Pennsylvania. It, it didn't get enough votes to move forward in the Senate, and so it, it just it, it, the legislation just uh, stalled right there. Um, so now there are some Democrats saying we should go back to this Manchin-Toomey bill. Um, now Manchin himself says, you know, he's met with Toomey. They've talked about it. He says, look, he's in cycle this time, so it's, it's a different political issue for him. Right, tough reelection election uh, in, a t- in a tough state for any Democrat. Um, and he says the only reason he'll get behind this is if President Trump lines up behind it and a bunch of Republicans do. So see very little chance of something happening there. Um, see very little chance of an assault weapons ban or any kind of restrictions on ammunition. What does have a chance, and I think it has a good chance, is some legislation on what are called uh, bump stocks or slide fire devices. And these are they're aftermarket products that you buy and you attach to your gun a semi-automatic weapon, and it allows you to mimic a machine gun, basically an automatic weapon. It allows it, – it actually – what it does is it, quote, unquote, bumps the, the trigger. So you just hold the, you, you hold the trigger down, and it, and it fires like it's an automatic weapon. So you can take a semi-automatic weapon, which is one pull, one shot, and make it seem like an automatic weapon. Brez, that's what the shooter in, in Vegas used, right? He he reportedly had about a dozen of these devices on his numerous weapons. And so he had he had very powerful weapons. He had you know AK-47s, he had AR uh, AR-15s, Bushmasters. These are these are these are powerful uh, uh, guns. And he had these automatic uh, he had these bump stocks on them, so they mimicked automatic weapons. And so I think there is. A realization in Congress. I think a lot of members on both sides of the aisle never heard of these devices, and they're saying this is something we could look at. This is something we could get behind. Now, the NRA has not formally taken a stance on this National Rifle Association, which would be something. This would be important uh, meter for uh, any Republicans. Where's the NRA on this issue? It has been interesting, though, to see even even before the NRA has – the NRA is kind of doing their traditional – like they, they've gone dark a little bit, right? right? They're not really putting out public statements right. as they often do after, after tragedies like this. But right. we have seen some conservative Republicans jump out in front of this and say that they, they would be – well, I think that's what's given us the sense of momentum, right? We've seen people who you would not usually expect – to to kind of be be in favor of pushing something like this. Uh, oh, absolutely. We've seen. I mean, we had talked to Senator, my majority whip, uh, John Cornyn. He is a big gun rights proponent. Uh, he said this is something we should have a hearing about. We should we can look at this. Other Senate Republicans have done it. Uh, Speaker Paul Ryan today said on NBC he was open to something on this issue. So, I mean, there's a, a bunch of Republicans who are saying this is uh, this is something they'd be open to. Again, this is a pretty narrow piece, pretty narrow issue. I think this is something that they think about. We we might see the Trump administration do something in trying to preempt legislation. I'm not sure. There's a couple paths this, this could go. That's really interesting. Um, it is, and it, it it it's really kind of just. I think that this was – I don't think anybody was really aware of how widespread a market could be for these devices. There's no – is not really an idea of how 
broadly that they're that they're sold because they're not regulated at all. Hmm. Um, you know, one thing that's that struck me looking uh, looking at this is this issue has has flared back up in the last week. Is five thirty eight had an interesting piece uh, uh, analyzing some Pew Research data and basically coming away with the the the, the takeaway that. Guns have essentially become the issue that that most polarizes the party, like even more so than abortion. Almost, I guess, almost as much as immigration is the one. But the, that that there's really no um, there there's almost no daylight within the parties uh, on on the issue, and they couldn't be more separate. And it it just strikes me. I mean, the the fact that as we talked about at the top of the segment, that it's been ten years since uh, since there's been. Uh, any any sort of new gun control measure, you know, that's that's the same time that we've seen kind of the northeastern Republicans fade out of Congress. The rural Democrats really fade almost almost away, although there are still right. a few. It's the the no, there's almost no issue that gets everyone retreating to their corners like this one. No, there really is, and as you mentioned, abortion, immigration, and guns. Those are those are probably the big three, the holy three. Uh, you know, as you'll have some members talk about it. Now, there has been some, there had been some gun uh, legislation moving in Congress. Uh, those were actually loosening gun restrictions. You have Republican Congress, Republican President. Those look like those were. Those are also going to stall in the wake of this shooting. This was on silencers. There was some legislation on silencers. There's some some legislation on uh, concealed carry that has a lot of support. There's actually a couple of Democrats who have supported this concealed carry legislation. So, but yes, this is there is very little. This is so hyper partisan on guns. There is really. Uh, and it's, and it's been this way for a generation. To be honest, there was. I mean, in the 90s. There was legislation. They, they, there were, there were big. When we had, when we had even higher murder rate than we do now uh, nationally, uh, we have probably fewer mass shootings, but a higher overall murder rate because of the, uh, the, the drug epidemic in the inner cities. Then there was a huge number of murders in, in in all our American cities, and there was. To, I mean, we couldn't pass legislation on gun locks. I mean, they put a bill on gun locks, so they so they try to stop. You know. The idea was that we'd put locks, require locks on guns if they're if they're if they're not being used to try to stop uh, children by being actually sh- uh, shot or or somebody losing a gun or or some kind of accident. I mean, there were 300 votes against it. I mean, there was. I mean, there has been. This is such a sharply, you know, divided issue. It's red state, blue state, but it's also it's it's frankly it's it's uh, rural versus urban. There, there is there is there is there's almost no middle ground on this issue, and there's been very very little movement on this issue. Remember, Congress doesn't even allow uh, uh, the CDC to study uh, gun violence. We don't even allow our agencies to study gun violence. For you know, forget about you know doing any legislation. We don't even allow the government, the federal government, to look at it. Is the, is, is gun violence? A, a you know to to study the causes and effects. We don't allow the federal government to do anything. We don't allow any reg, national registration of guns, anything like that. I mean, this is the the the, the pro gun rights movement is extraordinarily popular, uh, are extraordinarily powerful, and in the states and red states particularly, it's very it's very popular. I mean, look at Nevada where this this incident took place. It's an open carry state. There are there are literally. 
there are very few restrictions on on gun sales in Nevada. You can you can it's open carry. It's it's an as is state, which means you get a a, a a concealed carry permit unless there's something you're disqualified for. You're automatically assumed you can get it unless you're disqualified for it. I mean, there's, and I, I think there was a there was a background checks measure that passed by popular referendum last year, but is now kind of tied yes. up in court yeah. in in Nevada. I mean, yeah. which, uh, there's a Republican attorney general, Adam Laxalt, there who is, I think, about to announce his run for governor, who is kind of partly staking his, um, you know, that, that's part of his appeal uh, to. Yeah, to and you're voters. seeing now and you're seeing gun issue uh, emerge in Virginia, where you have a north south divide. You have a north uh, northern Virginia is much more blue and, and southern Virginia is much more red. And Ed Gillespie, the Republican candidate, uh, is trying to exploit this gun issue. So, I mean, uh, yes, there is the, there is this is it, like abortion, like immigration, there is literally there is there's there's very little common ground, which is why when you had the Manchin Toomey bill in 2013, there was so much excitement over that that we finally have found some kind of bipartisan movement. But you know, since then, despite any number of of incidents, there is very little chance of anything moving other than this narrow bill on gun stocks. If it does in fact happen. I think what you're seeing also is the after effects. This is one of the after effects of the hardening of the of the parties. There's almost no big city presence in the Republican Party anymore. Right. And that's true at almost any level and certainly in Congress. I mean, it's hard to imagine, but there was a time when when there were members of Congress who were Republicans who represented parts of America's biggest cities. I mean, heck, Manhattan, right. remember, Manhattan right. used to have a Republican congressman. Yeah. And likewise, there's a declining rural presence in the Democratic Party as well. Well, and so neither side uh, gets to hear the other side's arguments. It's why we can't have a mature debate about uh, this issue, and it's why and it's why we're so darn polarized. And I think the one fact that people often forget is like one of the best lessons I ever learned uh, as a as a reporter was uh, I was covering a state legislature uh, as a young reporter. Didn't really understand yet the the forces that drive the gun the gun issue and the mechanics of it. And so I was asking the state legislator. Uh, I had seen polling that showed you know a majority of people wanted some restrictions. This I think was after uh, one of these mass events, and and the legislator explains to me. He says, what you have to understand is the intensity of the opposition is so much greater than the intensity of support for gun control. And so it's not really about NRA donations and things like that. It's that the NRA organizes uh, and there are uh, a ton of gun owners. I mean, we don't really know. We don't exactly know how many gun owners there are out there, but polling suggests that more than a third of Americans say they or someone in their household owns a gun. We're talking about tens of millions of of people, probably closer to 100 million than 10 million. So a, this is a ton of people. There are lots of states with very strong gun cultures. Pennsylvania is one of them. You know, right. as a Pennsylvanian, I mean, I, I know that even though you think right. of the big cities like Philly and places like that that are, you know, have, have strong gun control movements in them, a state like Pennsylvania has a really strong gun control co- culture. And But because of the nature of how Congress is is represented now and 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 the way the parties have segregated themselves you can't ever really have a debate anymore no there is no there is no debate on this there's very little there's you know somebody tries to push a legislative approach and that's about it but i think that goes to just what you were talking about i mean there is a huge cultural divide on this and it, and it reflects uh, a societal divide on this gun owners are extraordinarily passionate and and i completely agree with your point 
people always, unfortunately, when there's one of these incidents, they, they always say, look at the NRA donations. It's really not about the NRA's money. It's about their ability to mobilize voters, people who care about this issue. The NRA has roughly, I think it's about 5 million members, all right? They vote. They get out and vote, especially in Republican primaries. If the NRA says, you know, candidate A is our, you know, she's for us, and candidate B is against us, that, that's a big deal in a primary. Um, people who have strong uh, support from the NRA generally do much better in Republican primaries. And again, as you were saying, you know, there is, you know, as the parties have gotten uh, much more uh, entrenched uh, geographically, and, and, and you know, the, 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 you know, the red states, there are very few blue dogs now. There are very few, you know, white Democrats holding seats in red states, a majority red states outside of urban areas. Okay. Um, so that, you know, there, there is not, a, you know, a, 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 and, and the other way around, there are fewer Northeastern Republicans. There are, you know, there are fewer urban Republicans. I mean, you do have one in, uh, you know, Dan Donovan in Staten Island, but they're in New York city. There's no, you know, there's no other, uh, there's no other Republicans in lower in, in, in New York city. I was just talking to one New York city Democrat. He's, you know, we were joking about his district. He's like, yeah, I'm in a 2 million percent democratic district. You know, I mean, there are in a lot of these districts because of, because the way the districts are drawn, you know, the primary Republican or Democrat is the general election. If you win your primary, you are going to be the next congressman or or senator uh, from from that city, from that district, or that state. So, I mean, there is why compromise on these issues. There's no reason to compromise. You have to be the pure one. And then let's also factor in the rise of the bright parts of the world and this 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 partisan media on both sides. If you you know if you stray from the dogma, you are going to get pounded by these by these uh, by these um, news outlets, these media outlets, and they are going to. They're not care. They don't care about you know fairness and you know even handedness. They're going to pound you if you're out of line on abortion, if you're out of line on immigration, if you're out of line on guns. They're going to hit you, and they're going to you know they're going to and you're going to be you know uh, seen as an enemy of of this this agenda. So I mean it's you know uh, all these factors make it you know more and more likely there's not going to be any compromise on guns. That sooner or later, I mean. It would have to be a large societal shift before I think we would see any any real change on the gun debate. Mm. Well, we'll keep an eye on what what happens with the bump stocks. We'll uh, track that that uh, legislation if it emerges and starts to move. And uh, Brez, thanks so much for for making the time. We'll let you get back to it up on the hill. Thanks, guys. All right, take care. All right, for our next segment, let's bring in uh, White House reporter Nancy Cook. Nancy, thank you for being here. Oh, of course. Thanks for having me. And we are going to talk tax reform, and the number for tax reform is $1.5 trillion. That is how much room Senate Republicans have made in their budget, or at least the the draft of their budget that's kind of the, the handshake agreement that is circulating right now for tax reform, which could add to the deficit but would fulfill a major campaign promise for promise for Trump. Uh, the House and the Senate are going to be negotiating on exactly you know how much or if this is going to add to the deficit. But Nancy, can you tell us where this stands? We've seen principles on this rolled out several times, each with a little more detail than the last. But uh, as you know, the details are always the trickiest part of major legislation, and there's probably no issue where the details matter more than on tax reform. Yeah, so where we are now is the White House is full steam ahead on tax reform. Uh, the administration views this as a major and crucial priority to get done ahead of 2018. 
to appease donors, to appease conservative activists. They see this as a huge victory that they need politically, particularly after the failure of health care. Um, you know, and they put out this framework last week along with some congressional leaders and uh, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin that laid out some very, very broad principles um, I think what the White House doesn't totally understand is that you know tax reform is a longer process. The House and the Senate, as you mentioned in your intro, have to first pass this budget that will contain instructions for tax reform. And there's a couple of really big things at stake. So one is this political point about who's going to benefit from tax reform. Is it just going to be a huge tax cut that primarily benefits businesses and uh, the wealthy? Or will it be something that benefits everyone. And already there's been some discussion, even with the framework that they put out about, um, you know, who it will benefit and some criticism that it will be a huge giveaway to companies and wealthy individuals. The other thing at stake is, will this add to the deficit? Remember the deficit? Republicans really cared about it when President Obama was in power. They seem to have really lost that religion uh, now that they control Congress and the White House. And that's part of this uh, framework that the House and the Senate are setting up, just like how much money can they necessarily lose? And so far, uh, you know, it seems like they're willing to lose quite a lot. And then the third thing is, and this is tied to the deficit, is that they haven't given any specifics really on how they would pay for these big rate cuts. So there's kind of a difference in language in the way you talk about it. Tax reform means you're like overhauling the whole tax system. You're going to lower the tax rates, but you're also going to get rid of all these tax deductions that have cropped up over the years. That is way different than just a tax cut. And, uh, you know, Trump at least seems super focused on the tax cut aspect of it. And even the Republican framework that they released on taxes was much more focused on the tax cut because it gave zero details about or very few details, I should say, about what deductions it would get rid of. And uh, that's also been a criticism of it. And those are sort of like the big three things to watch as this process moves forward. Now, Nancy, you mentioned the those deductions is you know part of the business of tax reform is trying to trade some of those deductions that have built up year over year over year for lowering the rates and the idea is eventually you know you you end up with a cleaner system with at least as much revenue or, or a manageable amount of revenue but the problem is that people love those deductions oh right? my goodness they love them and there was one deduction that Republicans identified as a potential thing to eliminate in this framework that they released last week, and that was getting rid of uh, people's ability to deduct state and local taxes. That framework has been out for one week exactly, or you know, six, let's say eight days, and already Republicans on the Hill are saying, "Oh no, 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 we can't get rid of that." And so that's the whole problem with tax reform, right? Every single time people talk about eliminating something, there's always a constituency represented by someone in Congress that says, "Let's not touch that tax break." That helps, you know, businesses in my district or people. And that's what makes it so hard, even if Republicans control, you know, all of Congress and the White House. It's just a really heavy political lift, which is why we haven't seen it done since 1985. And Charlie, it was the it was a lot of uh, blue state, big state Republican House members who were really charging out on this. You can see the uh, potential political liability for them, right, if if their constituents are suddenly ending up losing this deduction that that. Uh, puts a lot of money back in their pockets when it comes time to do their taxes every year. On the flip side, there's we saw uh, President Trump last week go to Indiana uh, to rally for tax reform. Uh, Senator Joe Donnelly was along, and and Trump kind of threw an elbow at him a little bit uh, during his speech. And there, you know, 
we we have not seen yet this year the red state Democratic senators up for re-election really be pushed to break from their party on pretty much anything of major consequence. But there's some Republican thinking that tax reform could be could be that uh, that issue. Yeah, I, and I don't really buy it. Uh, I mean, first of all, every Demo- yeah, I mean, <laughs> every, I just don't buy the logic there. I don't see it. I mean, every Democrat has to uh, also keep in mind that any any sort any sense of collaboration with the Trump administration comes at a cost. I mean, just look at Dianne Feinstein in in California. Uh, the idea that she is somehow a collaborator with the Trump administration or is uh, someone who is, is you know not in line with mainstream democratic thinking is is to me sort of crazy but that's that's the uh the the state of the democratic party right now and so i think for many democratic legislators there's much more to lose than to gain by working with the trump administration and and here's the other thing i mean what exactly are they going to be delivering to their constituents uh, from this tax reform. I mean, first of all, we're not going to see comprehensive tax reform. I mean, I think that's out the window. And I think they understand that the main impetus for this, and, and I think this is sort of the dirty little secret right now about tax reform, is that the main impetus is the donor class revolt. It is that, and, and, and this, that's not a, a, a way of saying that this is entirely driven by big money interests. It's partly that. But it's just it's just politics here. It is the Trump administration understands that Republicans are facing a growing revolt from their top donors. You know, and if and think about it if you're the donor class, you've given a ton of money. And what have you seen in recent years that really uh, makes you feel like it was worth it? Let's you know forget about the, the, the 2012 elections or anything like that. Just think about right now. You've got a Republican president. You've got a Republican-controlled House and Senate. You control most governorships, most chambers in state legislatures. And what are you seeing? Like you're not seeing uh, huge results, especially out of Washington. I mean, uh, Republicans don't have a better answer. I mean, Mitch McConnell tells, tries to tell the donor class, well, you know, passing legislation is a really difficult thing and then goes through the whole uh, – you know, here's the process of how a bill becomes a law. People don't want the donors don't want to hear that. They want to see results, especially in the wake of the Obamacare debacle, and they're not seeing it. So, to me, that is the force that's really driving tax reform, and that's why I don't think Democrats want to get on board on it. Well, let's turn at this point to uh, Vice President Mike Pence's chief of staff, Nick Ayers, who was caught on tape uh, telling donors this at a recent fundraiser. Not because of anything the president or vice president has done or hasn't done, but we're on track to get short. On a year when we can be totally on offense because of how favorable the Senate map is to us, at best, it's going to be a wash. At worst, these things come in waves that are always bigger than people anticipate. So, Charlie, this speaks exactly to what you were saying. And this tape was obtained by uh, Andrew Restuccia and Matthew Nussbaum, two of our uh, crack administration reporters. And, I mean, that's that's it in a nutshell. Ayers got wild applause from the assembled donors at the RNC for suggesting that that they might, uh, you know, withhold money from from House members and senators running for re-election if nothing gets done. And uh, it, I mean, it seems like the, the White House is not not unwilling to stoke this a little bit. Yeah, I mean, Nick is. Uh, I, I worked uh, with him in the past a little bit back when uh, he made his first tour of Washington. He's he's an exceptionally uh, clever guy and very, very good at uh, politics. And so I was a little surprised, though, to read that, to, to see that story, that he would be talking that way, because, I mean, it's not like 
I, he's really the insurgent class of the Republican Party. And I, but I think the more you hear of forces within the Trump administration cutting off the legs of their majorities in the House and Senate, uh, advancing or supporting uh, challenges to, to incumbent members, the harder it's going to be. Why would you ever trust the White House if you knew that behind the scenes they were stoking the flames uh, of challenges against you all the time? I think that that kind of undermines their ability to really get any legislation passed. Well, and they had really been stoking this narrative that they'd learned their lessons from health care and the tax reform was going to be totally different and President Trump was going to you know, support Congress and sort of be this public figure that would help sell the American public on the idea of the need of a ta- for a tax overhaul. But what we're increasingly seeing is that the White House is really setting themselves up to blame Congress and not take any of the responsibility of tax reform fail. And, you know, we're seeing that with the Nick Ayers thing. And, you know, that's basically what happened with health care as well. Or that was one of the dynamics, at least. You know, Trump publicly criticized the House health care bill, called it mean, you know, really undercut members after they took difficult votes. And they're setting themselves up to say, you know what, look, we did our best. We tried. We put out this framework, even though it, quite frankly, was very vague and lacked a lot of details. And that way, if Congress doesn't get it done, they're going to try to make Congress own it. Nancy, um, what, can you walk us through the math a little bit here in terms – especially in the Senate? The House is obviously – it's counting to that number is a little trickier. There are so many variables in play with you know the 23 uh, Republicans in districts. Clinton won and you've got you know the, the state and local stuff put Republicans in some states that you wouldn't necessarily think of as vulnerable, but it made them potentially – you've got the freedom – anyway, but in, in the Senate, you've got 52 Republicans. What What's the – What's the early look at the math there of the the prospects of this passing look like? Well, the math is going to be really tough. I mean, very similar to health care. You know, they're going to try to do it through reconciliation, which means that they can't, you know, they can only lose two votes. Already we have Rand Paul and uh, Senator Bob Corker, who'd recently announced his retirement. They've both raised questions and uh, a sense of discomfort about the fact that this would add to the deficit. We have Susan Collins of Maine also expressing some reluctance. And so in the Senate, you know, the real sticking points are going to be the people who are fiscal hawks that don't want to pass some huge package that ultimately is just a bunch of tax cuts that add to the deficit. And interestingly, I would say the House, you know, the House is fractured and has its own dynamics. But one interesting dynamic to watch there is that the House Freedom Caucus and the conservative members of the Republican Study Committee really don't like uh, the Treasury Secretary Mnuchin, are very skeptical of the bankers in the administration like Gary Cohn. Uh, and their their comfort with debt. And, you know, they want to see if there's going to be like big tax cuts. They want to see corresponding spending cuts. And that's not what the administration is talking about. So that's another real thing to watch because that will be a pressure point. There's already a real sense of distrust between the people in the administration that are leading this effort and those groups. Nancy, I've got to ask you this. I want to know your opinion on this. At the end of the, I know the Freedom Caucus is sort of playing nice right now. And yeah. Oh, yeah, they're on board. And all that. Oh, they're kind of playing nice. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, at the end of the day, when this gets done, do you really think most of them will be on board? Like, the more I look at the math, the more I look into it, the more I don't know. I just can't see how they're the majority of them are going to be on board at the end. Yeah, and I think that's accurate. And I think that they, you know, do have some questions about uh, the deficit and what this is going to look like. And then there's other things in there that I don't think they would necessarily support, like an expanded child tax credit. 
you know, a lot of, uh, you know, social conservatives like that idea, but other conservatives think, well, that's just like adding another kind of loophole or specific tax break to the code. Do you know what I mean? Those groups want like no deductions. They they want it just a really simple thing. And that's just adding another layer of complexity. So I think that will be a major problem. And, you know, Secretary Mnuchin earned no goodwill with them when he went up to the Hill after uh, – President Trump had cut that debt ceiling deal with Chuck and Nancy, Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi. And Secretary Mnuchin told, uh, you know, House Republicans, well, you need to vote for this and do it for me. And they're still talking about that. I mean, they thought that was ridiculous. They have no relationship with him. You know, they're not going to do it for the Treasury Secretary, who's a Goldman Sachs banker who's given to Democrats before. Well, at least his wife is an asset. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot to unpack there. Yeah, no comment. (laughs) Nancy, uh, this is going to be really interesting to follow, uh, and I know you love talking about it, so we are going to be talking about it more. uh, Let's wonk out, my friends. Let's (laughs) climb into the weeds. All right. For our final segment this week, we are going to talk about Trump's cabinet, and uh, we have – it's been a very eventful week or week and a half for Trump's cabinet. We have our national political reporter, Eliana Johnson, here to talk us through it. Hi, Eliana. Hey, Scott. Okay. So our data point for this is 232 days. That's how long former Health and Human Services Secretary Tom Price lasted in Trump's cabinet. Price resigned on Friday after a series of stories from our amazing political colleagues, Rachna Pradhan and Dan Diamond, on Price's penchant for traveling on government-funded private jets instead of flying commercial. But Price is not the only member of the cabinet having a rough summer. Here's what Secretary of State Rex Tillerson was up to on Wednesday morning. The vice president has never had to persuade me to remain as secretary of state because I have never considered leaving this post. Let me tell you what I've learned about this president. He's smart. He demands results wherever he goes, and he holds those around him accountable for whether they've done the job he's asked them to do. So, Eliana, what 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 the heck is happening at the State Department right now? Why is Rex Tillerson so frustrated, though, He said Wednesday that he's not resigning. Yeah, so I was going to say these are two very different stories. Um, The Tom Price story, one, I think, of mismanagement and abuse with very little oversight from the Trump cabinet. I think that will change. Tillerson's story is a little bit more interesting. I have to say I think the moron comment uh, has been a little bit overplayed. Like I – Does anybody think that there isn't a member of the Trump cabinet who hasn't called him a moron? Um, This just happened to get – out. Um, the bigger story, I think, about Tillerson is that there, there has been sort of this rumor or this cloud around him since shortly after he was confirmed that he was a short timer and that he was on the verge of quitting. And these have come up several times. There was a rumor that he was going to quit after the UN General Assembly. There was a rumor that he was going to quit over the summer, which appeared in this NBC News piece. And a couple other times these rumors have popped up. And I think uh, Tillerson in particular struggles because he is an establishment Republican. He's sort of an embodiment of the Republican establishment. He was recommended to Trump by Condi Rice and former Defense Secretary Bob Gates, um, who really disagrees with the president on most substantive issues, the Paris Climate Accord, the decertification of the Iran deal, which the president is likely to do next week. Um and a host of other issues and couldn't be more different from him in terms of style either. 
Um, Tillerson also hasn't really embraced the public aspects of the job. He sort of let uh, U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley and others upstage him. And so I do think that there's just sort of been a kind of a cloud hanging over him. And he finally moved because of this NBC News story to dispel that yesterday and, and said in no uncertain terms that he has never considered stepping down. He's not considering stepping down. And simply because he's been so reticent to be in the spotlight, um, he really did not engage with the media at all when he was at Exxon. And I think he hasn't really adjusted since he's been in government. Um, It got a lot of attention. Um, So I think that's the real issue with with this secretary of state. Uh, I would say less so that he called the president a moron. Here's here's my question, though. And I I, I see what you're saying about the two the Price story being a very separate thing. Are there any which cabinet secretaries is Trump like extremely happy with right now? I it sounds like it's it, it seems to me that there are more that he's unhappy with than that he's happy with at this point, right, Nancy? Well, but I think that's always been the case. I mean, there's always been like a few people who have a lot of juice with him, and then everyone else, there's sort of gradations of it. And I think you know he was really happy. Um, uh, you know, he has been really happy sort of pretty consistently with Treasury Secretary Mnuchin. You know, they go back to the campaign. Mnuchin sort of always stands by him, including, uh, you know, coming in, in, out in support of Trump after his controversial Charlottesville comments. I think he has a very good relationship with Linda McMahon, who we've been seeing, who runs the Small Business Administration, which isn't necessarily like a huge high-profile um, agency. But, you know, she's been doing a lot of events with Ivanka Trump. She's been going on Air Force One on some tax reform events. Um, so I think that those two have a lot of juice. And so does Wilbur Ross, who runs Commerce, which is also not typically thought of as like the most important agency. It's it's just interesting because the State Department is such a high-profile assignment, and for him to have such a frayed relationship with Tillerson, you know, presents a lot of problems for foreign policy and just diplomacy abroad. Well, and, and as Eliana pointed out, this is there. There are a number of key, uh, major foreign policy and diplomatic events on the horizon. Uh, with you know the the. The Iran deal and the North Korea crisis, I think, have had them at at odds. Um, The North Korea crisis, the Secretary of State came out and said that he was opening diplomatic channels to North Korea. And what I didn't think got enough attention is that several White House sources told me that it was actually Tillerson who was off the reservation on that. It's Trump who doesn't yet want to open diplomatic channels. And um, and Tillerson went off script, which is why the president openly contradicted him and not which is not to say that that was appropriate, but it was Tillerson expressing his displeasure with Trump and getting smacked down by the president, um, not the president undermining what the agreed upon strategy was within his cabinet, I think, as it was publicly understood, which is interesting. But and then, of course, the Iran crisis, Tillerson really didn't want to decertify the uh, the Iran deal and decertification. I think he thinks will cause him uh, diplomatic headaches with the people he has to deal with. Uh, But, you know, it's not totally clear to me that Trump is unhappy with Tillerson um, or on the verge of firing him, though many people have it publicly come out and said that he should fire Tillerson. He hasn't moved to do so. He hasn't really belittled him publicly, though he's contradicted him. He came out and said yesterday that uh, he, you know, he dismissed the report. So it doesn't seem to me like right now. Uh, I think I think Tillerson will step down rather than be pushed out by Trump. But not anytime soon. 
Um, I, I mean, it depends what soon is. I my guess would be that he'll stay a year, which is kind of what's been the conventional wisdom from uh, from the beginning. Hmm. Meanwhile, I get we you know we've got a couple hurricanes and some other stuff going on. We don't have a department, a permanent department of homeland security secretary, um, and a few other things. Just trying, there's like been a lot of a lot of cabinet, a lot more cabinet related activity than uh, you know back and forth and movement than you typically see in the first year of a presidency. Yeah, so there's no HHS secretary right now. There's no DHS secretary. I do have to say, if Tillerson steps down, secretary of state is not really the kind of job that where you can have an acting uh, secretary of state. So if Tillerson steps down, they're going to have to have somebody ready to go. They're not going to be able to dawdle or consider their options uh, if he goes. Uh, they, they really de- do need to have somebody who has gone through the Senate confirmation process and who would be able to step in and take his place very quickly. What stands out to me is why people are acting so surprised about the whole Tillerson affair. You need accomplished, experienced executives to run cabinet agencies. I mean, because these are enormous, sprawling, complicated enterprises. And the kinds of people who are suited for those kinds of jobs are not the kind of people who respond well to the management style and ethos of the president. I mean, you just knew this was going to happen. It's going to happen in almost, if it hasn't already, in almost every agency, with the exception of of the places of of the agencies maybe that Nancy listed, where he has pre existing relationships. You know, it's it's in one way you can almost uh, judge what the relationship's going to be like by taking a look at two pivotal events in in Donald Trump's mind in in the public eye. Number one is where were they after Access Hollywood? Number one and number two, where were they after Charlottesville? You know, where did they come down? How loyal were they? I mean, if you look at the McMahon example, she's somebody who fits the loyalty uh, MO. I mean, she uh, her relationship with Trump goes before the campaign, dates back to her days at uh, Worldwide Wrestling. And, you know, the people I think that he gets along with best in the cabinet have those kinds of bonds. Otherwise, you know, you're in big trouble. Well, and I also think, you know, another thing to watch with the cabinet is there are other uh, sort of ethical and spending questions now being raised about Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke's spending um, and also uh, the EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt and some of, you know, Ryan Zinke, the questions are being raised about, you know, did he sort of inappropriately mix politics on government business trips? And with Zinke, the question is, or excuse me, that's the question with Zinke. With uh, Pruitt, the question is, uh, you know, did he use government spending basically to take trips home and, and soundproof his office or have a soundproof phone booth for his office in some way? And so there's all these questions about, uh, you know, the cabinet secretaries and their spending. And I Who know- doesn't have a soundproof phone <laughs> booth in their office? It would Come be on. Definitely if- not in the Politico us? newsrooms. Who we all hear us? each other's conversation. Maybe if we get that podcast studio built at some yeah. point, then we'll, we'll all have a soundproof phone booth. But but the so the, these spending questions are, I, I feel like the, the price stories that our colleagues wrote kind of like fired a starter's pistol almost. And now like it did. all of these cabinet secretaries are getting their their government spending dug through in in a very aggressive way. Absolutely. And I think the White House was really surprised. The White House had signed off on some of Price's trips, international ones, but not necessarily like taking a domestic charter flight from D.C. to Philly, which our colleagues (laughs) reported before. Um, And so I think the White House really wants to make sure that, uh, you know, this does not continue. And General Kelly has said he has to sign off on these sort of uh, private trips. But that's another thing to keep watching because that could further upend the cabinet if there's more of these revelations. I have to say, I have a confession on this. I find these spending stories, the price story and Ziki, in a way, uh, and this is really um, 
disturbing, but I find them almost refreshing because it, it lends a sense of normalcy to Washington. You know, these are stories that we're familiar with, we're, we're accustomed to. They're, they're not these terrible uh, examples of aberrant behavior at the top levels of government. And Charlie, I have a question for you. Have you ever flown from D.C. to Philadelphia? <laughs> Only in a car <laughs> at about 90 miles an hour. Um, Eliana, bring things back to, to Tillerson and the State Department. Um, you know, what um, – can, can you kind of walk us through – you said Iran next week. I mean, what what do we know about about what, what might happen and when and how, how that affects the um, – the 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 rest of the deal that the the nations uh, other than the United States kind of fleshed out with Iran a few years ago. I think that that's something that gets missed in the political conversation here. That this was a group of allies uh, that that came together to work this out uh, with Iran. It's not just the United States standing alone. And I don't know actually if it's a domestic political issue in other countries the way it is in in the United States. If it, if it is a domestic political issue in in Britain and, and France the way that it has become here. Well. I think we're getting a pretty clear p- picture of how this is going to play out. Um, there were several reports on uh, on Tuesday, more reports yesterday, and a couple of more reports today. It does seem that the president is prepared to decertify the deal on the grounds that it is not in the national interests of the United States, um, which is different than saying that Iran is not compliant with the deal, but also part of the certification process. And uh, my sources have told me essentially that the only thing that Trump hates more than the deal itself is having to certify the deal. So apparently Congress and the White House are also looking at ways to um, change the certification process such that he wouldn't have to certify every 90 days because he just hates uh, putting his imprimatur on that. Um, But beyond that, the, what would actually unravel the deal and make this an international issue, the decertification uh, alone does not do that, would be if Congress moved to reimpose nuclear sanctions on Iran. And it doesn't look like the White House is going to press them to do that. So that would essentially leave the deal intact. Um, and the nuclear issue is really just one part. It gets outside attention, but it's actually just one part of a broader White House strategy toward Iran that H.R. McMaster has been working on since April and that he is planning to roll out later this month um, that is going to disproportionately target uh, Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps, which the White House has decided is, you know, they they consider all of Iran bad, but the Guard Corps a disproportionately bad actor within that, the primary source of um, terrorist actors exported abroad. They control about 50 percent of Iran's economy. They're going to officially label the Guard Corps a terrorist group. Um, that will be the first time that the military wing of a foreign government has gotten that designation and really just try to hammer the Guard Corps into the ground. It also saves them the headache then of having to pound uh, – the regime itself. They want to use the Guard Corps as a vehicle for going after the regime. Uh, Guard Corps is obviously very closely tied to the regime, but there's a little bit of a distinction. And so um, I think it is important to um, to look at the broader strategy and the criticism of people like McMaster and Mattis, who I think were sort of neutral on what to do about the deal, was that they really felt the Obama administration had subordinated a lot of its Iran strategy um, to getting this deal across the finish line and then to preserving the deal. Um, So they wanted to roll out a tougher strategy um, that 
um, of which the deal was one part and not focused so microscopically on the deal itself. All right. Well, big news on the foreign policy front to keep an eye on uh, potentially next week and certainly uh, as it develops in the week after that. Thank you for walking us through that, Eliana. You are most welcome, Scott. And uh, Nancy Cook, thank you for being here as usual. Oh, thanks, Scott. And Charlie, thank you. Thanks for having me. And as always, a big thank you to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Remember, if you have questions, you can email us at nerdcast at politico.com. We'd love to hear from you. On a similar note, remember, please subscribe, rate us, and if you have time, write a written review of the Nerdcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. So with that, thanks again for listening. Thank you to our executive producer, Bridget Mulcahy, our illustrator, Bill Cookman, and a thank you to our playbook producer and Nerdcast researcher, Zach Montalaro. That's it for us. We will talk to you again next week.